Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Check out our great selection of garage and utility lighting options in stock, ready to take home today. We carry everything to help you illuminate whatever project you're working on. Shop garage and utility lighting products in store at your nearest Menards. You can also view all of our entire selection of lighting options today on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in Counselor Education and Supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of the Ketty murders? Glenna Susan Sharp and John Sharp were a married couple who lived in Connecticut. Glenna went by the name Sue. In July of 1979, Sue left her home because her husband had been mistreating her. She took the couple's five children with her, John, Sheila, Tina, Rick, and Greg. They moved to Quincy, California, and lived in a trailer that had been occupied by her brother, Don. In the fall of 1979, Sue and her children moved into cabin number 28 in the Ketty Resort, which is a rural community in Ketty, California. This is in Plumas County. This takes us to the timeline of the crime. In April of 1981, Sue was 36 years old, John was 15, Sheila was 14, Tina was 12, Rick was 10, and Greg was five. On April 11, 1981, at 11.30 a.m., Sue, Sheila, and Greg drove back from the Meek family residence to Gansner Field in Quincy to pick up Rick, who was trying out for baseball. After picking up Rick, Sue and the children stumbled upon John, as well as a 17-year-old named Dana Hall Wingate. John and Dana were hitchhiking. Sue picked them up, and they continued toward Ketty. At 3.30 p.m., John and Dana hitchhiked back to Quincy. They were spotted downtown. Moving to the evening, we see that Sue was planning on staying at her residence with Rick, Greg, and a 12-year-old friend of theirs named Justin Smart. Tina was over at the Seabolt family residence. They lived in cabin number 27, which was next door. Sheila had plans to spend the night with the Seabolt family. She left the house not long after 8 p.m., at 9.30 p.m., Tina returned from the Seabolt residence. So just to clarify everybody's position, in house number 28, which was the Sharp residence, there was Sue, Rick, Greg, and Tina from the Sharp family, as well as Justin Smart. Sheila was at the Seabolt residence, number 27, and John and Dana were last spotted in Quincy. It is believed that they caught a ride home sometime between 10 p.m. and 11 p.m. On the morning of April 12, 1981, at 7 a.m., Sheila returned from the Seabolt residence to get dressed for church. Upon entering the Sharp residence, her home, she found three dead bodies in the living room. They belonged to Sue, John, and Dana. Sheila fled the house and ran back to the Seabolt residence. Jamie Seabolt made his way to the Sharp residence and pulled Rick, Greg, and Justin through the bedroom window. The three boys were completely 
unharmed. Later, Jamie would admit that he did enter the Sharp residence through the back door, but only stayed for a moment to check and see if anybody else was alive. The police were called at 8.05 a.m. Upon arriving, they realized that Tina was not in the Sharp residence. The police found that Sue, John, and Dana had been murdered with knives and a hammer. There was blood spatter inside the living room, but nowhere else in the house. Their bodies were found tied up with electrical cords and medical tape. Sue's body was near the couch in the living room. She was nude from the waist down and gagged with her own panties, a blue bandana, and tape. A yellow blanket was covering her body. She had been stabbed in the throat and chest. Her head had been beaten with the butt of a pellet rifle, specifically a Daisy 880 power line. The police know this because they found a small piece of it broken off. Sue died from knife wounds and blunt force trauma. There was no sign of any type of an assault of a sexual nature. Someone had slashed John's throat and hit him in the head with a hammer. Just like Sue, he died from knife wounds and blunt force trauma. Dana was strangled to death and had been struck in the head with a hammer. There was no sign of forced entry into the Sharp residence. The telephone cord had been cut and the telephone was off the hook. The drapes had been closed. The only items missing from the house were a toolbox as well as Tina's jacket and shoes. The police interviewed everybody in the area. Rick and Greg indicated they slept through the attack. Justin initially said that he had dreamed details of the murders, but later he claimed he actually saw the murders as they happened. This account was provided under hypnosis. He said that he woke up after hearing something in the living room. He investigated and saw Sue and two strange men. The men were wearing glasses. John and Dana entered the house. They started arguing with the men and engaged in a fight. Evidently, the two strange men prevailed in the subsequent combat. After the fight concluded, Tina was taken out of the back door by one of the strange men. The police had access to professional forensic artists, but selected a man who had no training and no artistic talent to draw up a sketch. The police never explained why they did this. Now moving to Sheila, of course she was at the Seabolt residence when the murders occurred. She said she hadn't heard anything all night. Members of the Seabolt family said they saw a green van parked at the Sharp residence around 9 p.m. A couple who lived in house number 16 said that they heard muffled screaming at 1.15 a.m. It was loud enough to wake them up. Apparently, they decided not to worry about it and went back to sleep. Martin and Marilyn Smart lived in cabin 26, not far from the Sharp residence. Marilyn was Justin's mother. A friend of Martin's named John Boubet also lived there. He went by the name Bo. He'd only been living there for 10 days. Martin Smart claimed that there was a claw hammer missing from his house. The police said that Martin was a little too helpful. He kept giving them new information that conveniently focused attention away from his possible involvement. The police considered Martin their main suspect. Marilyn said that she believed that Martin and Bo committed the murders. She said that on April 11, around 11 p.m., she left the pair at a local bar and went back to her residence. She woke up at 2 a.m. to find the men burning something in the wood stove. True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. 
Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. And hi, Hi, True Crime Crime fans. fans. We're the co-hosts of She Goes by Jane. Every week, we'll be covering the story of a missing or unidentified woman in the United States. Stories you may have heard before. And ones whose stories didn't make it into the news. We've been covering these stories for a while, first in Amy's book of poetry, Doe, and then in Vanessa's documentary, She. But now we want to share them with you here on She Goes by Jane. And each week, we'll be joined by a special guest who will read a poem in honor of the women we talk about. Can we say who? We can say who. We'll be joined by actresses like Coco Jones and Gabrielle Ruiz. And musicians like Stephanie Quayle and Kelly Moneymaker, along with authors like Louise Penny and Catherine McKenzie. So check out She Goes by Jane wherever you get your podcasts, or check out Evergreen Podcasts and their true crime channel, Killer Podcasts. We can't wait to bring you these stories. Marilyn left her husband on April 12, the day the bodies were discovered. A search was conducted for Tina Sharp, but the police could not locate her. Her remains were found by a bottle collector over three years later, on April 22, 1984. The remains were located near Feather Falls, about 100 miles from Ketty. Near her remains, there was an empty surgical tape dispenser, as well as a blanket, a pair of jeans, and a blue jacket. On March 26, 2016, a hammer was discovered in a local pond. It matched the description of the one that Martin Smart said was mysteriously missing. The police said that based on where the hammer was found, it was placed there intentionally. It's not like somebody could have dropped it or accidentally left it behind. In 2018, the police said that DNA recovered from the tape was matched to a living suspect. Now moving to my analysis. The police tried to solve this case with a method they kind of made up as they went along, not really by using any police work. The investigation was poorly done at every level. Just a few examples. Evidence was put into a freezer when the freezer was turned off. Evidence was not kept in any organized way. Some of the items in the house were never entered into evidence. Some evidence was contaminated, and the police disregarded key evidence. As I mentioned, the police suspected Martin Smart. They also believed that his friend Bo was involved. Martin and Bo both had criminal records. Martin was a known drug dealer, and Bo was connected to organized crime. Chicago. Martin left Ketty shortly after the murders and moved to Nevada. He sent a letter to Marilyn in which he wrote, quote, I've paid the price of your love, and now I've bought it with four people's lives. 
You tell me we are through. Great. What else do you want? I guess murdering people was Martin's idea of a romantic gesture. Some people give their significant other a box of chocolates on a special day. Martin gives a quadruple homicide. The police say they overlooked that letter during the initial investigation. Martin evidently was treated by a counselor in Nevada on a regular basis. On session number seven with the counselor, Martin confessed that he had murdered Sue and Tina, but denied having anything to do with the boys. He said Tina was killed because she was a witness. Although the rules differ based on jurisdiction, generally this type of confession could not be revealed by the counselor. It's confidential. The crime was in the past. Martin wasn't threatening to kill someone in the future. Interestingly, the counselor immediately revealed what Martin had said, but the police dismissed the counselor's report as hearsay. If Martin and Bo were guilty, they will never see justice now. Bo died in 1988 and Martin in 2000. This case has a number of curious aspects. I'll go through a few of them here. First item, after Tina's remains were found, but before they were identified, an anonymous caller suggested to the police that the remains they found belonged to Tina. It is reasonable to believe that whoever made that call was involved in her homicide. It's not clear why they would risk being caught by having their voice recorded on the 911 call. At the time of making this video, the voice has not been matched to anybody. Second item, the logistics of this crime are very unusual. Three people are found dead in the cabin, one is found dead somewhere else, and three people in the cabin were left alive. I find it impossible to believe that anyone could have slept through the murders. Also, why would somebody leave a knife and a hammer used in homicides in the house, but then hide another hammer somewhere else, unless that blue call hammer was unconnected to the murders. Moving to the third item, one theory about the crime is that Sue Sharp was trying to encourage Marilyn Smart to leave Martin, and this led to Martin killing Sue. It doesn't explain why he would have killed the other people. The fact that Tina was taken from the cabin makes me think that the killers had additional plans for her. It could have been that Tina was the target all along, or they wanted to kill Sue and figured because they already committed one murder, they might as well commit more. They might as well do whatever they wanted to. Whoever killed Sue, John, Dana, and Tina wanted to specifically attack at least one of them. This was a rural area. The killers didn't just happen to stop by this cabin at random. The killers were known to the victims. Fourth item, Martin mentioned how his blue call hammer was missing. How often do people check their tools? Even if he did just happen to notice it missing, why would he think it was connected to the crime? Fifth item, Martin confessed to a counselor and in a letter he wrote to Marilyn. What exactly were the police looking for as far as evidence? I can see them sitting around and saying, no, we're not really looking for confessions. We want something more convincing. We're holding out for the real evidence. Sixth item, the police have suggested that several local people know more than they're saying. The police have every confidence that these people have participated after the fact or have firsthand information about the murders. They also said that DNA from the tape matched a living person, as I mentioned. I get the sense that the police are trying to pretend as if they're still going to solve this case. Maybe they're just waiting for the right time to make their move, like when every single suspect is already dead. This case should have been solved in about 30 days, given 
the evidence that was available and the fact that it was in a kind of a rural area, the number of suspects were really limited. This should not have been a case that dragged out for many years. It appears now that it will never be solved. Seventh item, I find it amazing that the neighbors heard muffled screams and went back to sleep. If somebody hears muffled screams, it means that somebody is screaming. Screaming usually indicates a problem. The level of common sense possessed by these neighbors qualifies them to join the local police department. Moving to my final thoughts on this case, my theory about the Ketty murders is that Martin and Bo were responsible. Martin was overly helpful to the police. He said a hammer was missing that matched one that was found later. He lived right near the crime scene. He was seen burning mysterious objects right after the murders. And he allegedly confessed to the crime on two occasions. I think that Martin Smart was asking to be caught, but nobody was listening. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.